Igen. I was actually going to start by saying I know Amy is the one preaching at Hope Chapel, and if I had a choice to listen to her or me 10 out of 10 times, I'm picking her. Um, so I know you guys are, in some ways, also settling today, so I'm grateful to be a part of this. And I just want to thank you for just allowing me to kind of crash the party this weekend and be with you. There's something significant that God has done and is still doing through Hope Chapel. I don't think anybody can fully see the permeating impact that this community has had, not just here in Austin, but on the global church. It truly is that paradigm of the mustard seed growing up in the birds perching upon its branches. And there are birds that are perched upon the branches that have been seeded through Hope Chapel. And the reason for that is because there's a legacy of obedience. And there's a willingness to say yes. And I was thinking, of, you know, this weekend of getting to engage with you guys, uh, the historical theologian Yaroslav Pelikan, he, he makes this distinction between tradition and traditionalism. Mm-hmm. And he says traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And he says the tradition, what we're supposed to hold on to, is the living faith of the dead. Mm-hmm. And so hope is a community of tradition. It's a community of carrying that legacy forward. And so to be with you guys is truly a blessing and an honor. And it's not to say that you know you guys are also aware of every fault and crack in your own community and every weakness, but to say that there's something significant here. And so as we've had this discussion this weekend, looking at these things that almost sometimes feel a bit disparate, you know, looking at this idea of how do we contend in our cultural moment? How do we witness to the gospel that Christ has given to us? And how is that formed within us in a way that we can bring together into some cohesive element? So the challenge before us this morning is to try to bring this full circle and say, well, what do we do with these things? What are the things that begin to bind this together? And as I was working on my portion of this, the part that I kept getting drawn to is how community draws all of these together. How this corporate dynamic allows this cultural contesting, this public witness, and this formation of what God is doing to come together in a meaningful way. And so today I just want to look at how we can kind of reframe our collective journey in Christ. But there's a challenge with that. The challenge with that is, and, and Keith mentioned this yesterday, he says, if we want to be formed by our culture, what do we have to do? Nothing. The reality is, is every single one of us comes to the table with some cultural formation. And a significant aspect of that formation is our individuality and our independence. And so we're going to have to deal with some of those dynamics this morning to look at what God is doing in terms of our corporate witness, our corporate formation, our corporate apologia, and what it means to actually be the body of Christ as men together. So just to rehash... Joe, <laughs> there we go. We're getting there. We are being equipped to stand. The jousting, the fighting, the contending, the defense, all these things are so that we can stand. But the reality is that we're, we're standing upon life. We're standing upon not just 
truth, but it's, it's, it's a connection to what is ultimate reality, what is real, the kingdom of God, the availability of God's presence and nearness through salvation in Christ. And we're witnessing to that. We defend it because it's being manifested within us. It's being formed inside of us. And so the hope that we're called to these things, this is what Keith was getting to. It gives us this opportunity to give a defense because people are seeing something that's manifest within us. And it demands that apologia. Somebody to say, can you make sense of why you're so gentle? Can you make sense of why you're so forgiving? Can you make sense of why you're so gracious? And those surprise moments. I think of, uh, uh, you know, when the Amish had the number in their community that were murdered. And their witness was to forgive. And the world was confounded by that. Why would you do that? Because there's something deeply ingrained within them, in their identity and their understanding, that said, this is who we are. I know a number of you guys have talked that uh, I love running. I love running. That's a new reality for me. It's only happened in the last 14 months. The majority of my life, I absolutely hated it. I couldn't stand it. Right? My knees hurt. My feet ached. I was sweaty. I was out of breath. It just was not pleasant. But as I've engaged it, as I've gotten to get into its rhythm, as all of a sudden it, 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 the pain started to go away and it became a natural habit, something deep inside of me happened where one day I go, I'm going to run. Now ask me not to run. You can't. And you see those surprise moments that Keith was getting us to is, why was it easy for them to forgive? Because they're already forgiving people. Why is it easy to be gentle? Because we're gentle people. Why is it easy to be generous? Because we're generous people. Until that's an internal reality that's formed among us collectively, those things will always be challenging. But once they're rooted deep inside of us, they become something that's an inescapable thing for us to be able to engage. And just like I can't pack a suitcase without running shoes in it now, we won't be able to pack our internal suitcase without loving kindness, forgiveness, grace and these types of things. But this requires us to, to look at this in a new dynamic. We have to acknowledge this shared history we have, which is really individualized and again privatized our understanding of our spiritual journey in Christ. So I want to take us back a little bit. I know Earl brought us kind of through this dynamic of how we've gotten to this autonomous self and these types of things. But I want to look at it in terms of how it's permeated our spiritual life. You see that the private life of the individual was something that historically was often lost. We look at the history of Christianity, especially medieval Christianity. What you had was the community. You had the corporate identity at the cost of the individual. Right? They no longer mattered. They didn't have significance. It was with the Reformation, with Luther, the rediscovery of God's love for us personally, that something that had been lost during that period had become reclaimed in a deep and significant way. That God loved me. That God knew me before he formed me in my mother's womb. That God knows the number of hairs that are on my head. That that love was available to us. And so Luther discovered that deep and significant love and it changed the world. It brought the individual back into the conversation in terms of society. But with it, it also started to put this theological emphasis on Things that were in, in, invisible, privatized, no longer public. 
See, if we're going to break apart from this corporate identity, we have to have some way of justifying it. For Luther, that way it was to say, well, it's this spiritual deposit within us, right? It sees things, and so it became something that was unseen. So we get this emphasis on the individual, and we get this emphasis on this unseen reality. And these things start to permeate cultural understandings. Right? Systems emerge out of this, okay? So this paves the way. Without Luther, we don't have the modern nation state. We don't have the protection of these individual rights. It's this rediscovery that opens the door in many ways for the modern world, a world that shaped each and every single one of us. I can't help but think as an individual. I can't help but think independently. Even the language that we use as we're engaging these things, it's the language of Privatization, the language of the unseen, the language of me. And if we're honest, these things have shaped us. They've formed us. So we already come to the table in this conversation looking at our witness, looking at our formation, with the formation that's already affected both. And that's important for us to acknowledge because it also means, you know, as Keith was talking about, there's a metanoia. There's a repentance. There's an unlearning that's required so that we can learn what the biblical narrative actually is and what God's inviting us into collectively and together. So let's look at the biblical narrative. The creation account and what it means to be human. Genesis 1 and 2 is just such a powerful introduction to what life is and who God is, what it actually means to be an image bearer. You get this narrative of him bringing, right, out of the void, light and darkness, right, forming and filling and ushering in life and bringing in beauty. And in the center of this narrative is an image bearer, an image bearer that he gives authority and dominion and says essentially to take this blank canvas of my creation and fill it with my likeness. Manifest me in the middle of it. You are my paintbrush that's going to paint the reality of who I am in the midst of it. But there's something really significant in that narrative. You see, we get introduced to male and female in chapter 1, but chapter 2 begins just with Adam. It pulls us back. It takes us to day 6, and it says, hey, I want to look at this in a little deeper reality, and all of a sudden, here's this solitary man. And God gives them a task, right? Go name the animals and find a suitable helper and do these types of things. And I want us to think about that. We skim over it because it's just a couple of verses. But I want you to think about that experience and how significant that was for Adam to the point that when we're looking at ontology and what it means to be human, that God said to Moses, you need to understand this part right here. So animal after animal after animal, right? All these things are coming before him, but there's not this reciprocating relationship that he's able to engage with. And out of that comes the only thing in creation that God says explicitly before the fall is not good. Right? Everything else is good. And it was good, and there was night and day, and it was good. Everything in this world is good, except for man's aloneness. That solitary reality allowed something significant to who Adam was to not be expressed that God could say that in itself is not good. You need somebody to reciprocate this relationship if you're truly going to manifest and bear who I am. 
And we can get into all the theological dynamics of God being Trinitarian and communal and all these different types of things. But essentially what he's saying to us as men is that you can't fully realize who you are as image bearers apart from another. It requires reciprocation. It requires mutual submission. It requires the dynamics of love to truly reflect who God is in the world. And that is something that we were created for. It's something that God has intended for us from the beginning. And so when we start to look at this biblical narrative, we see that, again, it's not good for man to be alone. So Genesis 1 through 11, just kind of laying this framework for the foundation of human history. All of a sudden in Genesis 11, we get to one man again. But what's the purpose of that one man? To become a people. To become a people that bear public witness to the God who is going to redeem them from the fall that they brought into this world that he created in goodness. And the whole rest of that narrative, the entirety of the Old Testament, is God's working in and through that people and most of the time correcting them, reframing them, delivering them, all these different types of things, but it's this collective witness together that all of a sudden comes back and culminates in one man again, the Messiah. We get the Gospels and we're introduced to him and we see Jesus not just working the solitary life, but it's the new Adam, bringing in apostles and disciples and creating community and sending them forth once more as a people. You see this privatized, individualized, solitary Christianity, there's something significantly deficient. And so when Christ is delivering us, and he's again ushering that exodus of who he is, delivering us once more, not just from the Egypt, the hell of our sins, and the guilt that comes with it, he's actually bringing us into the fullness of life he always intended for us. And that's a life that's shared in a corporate dynamic. It's a life that requires community. It's a life that requires other. It's a life that says we can't do this alone. And if you try to, guess what? It's not good. You see, he wants the fullness of our image-bearing potential to be realized. And the only way to do that is in the context of community. Jason's heard me share this a lot, and this is a photo that got as many Texans as I could find in it. So we got Jason and Amy and, and Joe. Um, this is from one of our, our Antioch meetings. We really need a Texan translation of the Bible. And I say that as somebody who doesn't share the same affinity and love for Texas as all of you guys do. Not everybody loves Texas as much as you do, Jason, and so, especially those outside of it, it sometimes confuses us. But this is one area, one area, where I can find significant agreement. It's the use of y'all. The second person plural, right? We've talked about all the issues pronouns in our society. We've got a pronoun issue in the church, but it's dealing with the first and second person. Right? I and me to we and us. If you look at the New Testament, almost every single command that is given to us is a second person plural. Y'all. Right? Y'all go and do this. And I love some of the things and the verses that we've already been engaging in in this weekend. 
One was Ephesians 6. Earl had this picture of that soldier up there, right, with the shield of faith and the arrows going into it. He's got the belt buckle of truth. He's got the sandals of salvation, or the helmet of salvation. He's all, he's good to go. He's rocking it. But the picture that Paul has here is not of the solitary soldier. It's of the Roman wedge. Right? This is the most intimidating, formative military tactic that had been developed in the world up to that point, and the only way it worked is if that unit moved together. If Earl's shield is not up and I'm standing next to him, guess who's getting hit? Me. If my shield's not up and all of a sudden Mark's next to me, guess who's getting hit? Mark. You see, the spiritual warfare and this whole dynamic that he gets us into in this text is saying, this is something you guys need to collectively engage together. It's effective not because... He is advancing. It's effective because we are advancing. You know, Bill, I loved everything we've done with worship. It's almost like we talked about this before I came up. But having us sing in the way that you have done and symbolizing our collective voice is huge. You see, the devil is not intimidated by the single worship leader. He's intimidated by the chorus of voices that are advancing together in the kingdom of God and is relentlessly protecting one another in love. That symbol is powerful. Because most of the worship songs that we sing, we still have this pronoun issue. We get together collectively, but oh, how Jesus loves me. Right? Oh, how Jesus loves me. Yeah, you're right there. But oh, how Jesus loves me. But what's interesting is Ephesians begins with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you guys know that's a transformation of the Barakah that opened the synagogue of worship? Barak, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Before there was a New Testament, there was a transformation of the corporate liturgy to define the people who were following after Jesus. You'll find that exact same Greek phrase that begins in Ephesians. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians, and you'll also see it outside of Paul's writings in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing that opened this corporate dynamic of worship that shaped the people of God, the king of the universe, they say, now reveals himself as father. Man, that changes things. The Lord, the Lord our God, is now personally revealed and manifested and incarnated among us in the person of Jesus Christ. We have touched him. We have felt him. We know him. God is not abstract. He is intensely personal, and he's among us. And that's not just shaping who I'm becoming that's shaping who we're becoming. So before we even have these letters to give us all these commands on what this reality truly is, the people were already worshiping and being formed by it together. Every passage that we've looked at up to this weekend, every single one of them is actually a second-person plural. So Galatians 4.19 that you used yesterday, brother, that I'm in labor pains until Christ is formed within y'all. All of y'all. All oh, y'all. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Y'all be transformed by having this singular mind. Interesting, right? And then he jumps right back to the plural. How do you discern and know what is good and acceptable in the will of God? Well, you'll know it when you guys know it together. What's the right circumstance to step into? The one that you can walk in in unity. 
There might be more strategic and effective ways to go about it, but the most effective way to manifest a witness to the kingdom of God is the one that you can carry together. Period. We all get the singular mind of Christ. That's how you'll know what is good and acceptable. You see, this is the entirety of the New Testament. It starts with, it has to begin with me. It has to start with my personal choosing, my own intention, my will. All these things that we see in this, this dim model that we're introduced to, but it never ends with me. It always takes us into an us. So I have to start with my intention. You have to start with your intention. But as we engage those places collectively together, the vision that we're moving towards is a vision that's bigger than my singular transformation. It's our collective transformation with one another. But aren't we as men, we've always known we've been wired for that. That's why we play soldiers, children. Right? I want to be part of something bigger. God goes, good, I created you for it. You're amazing. I love you. If it was just you, I would have given my life for you. But I gave my life for all of you. For y'all. So when we think of these things, when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, which again, this is where these ideas of looking at singular and plural, it really matters. The fruit of the Spirit is a singular reality. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the formation of the inner life in such a way that we just have this natural inner disposition, right? That we can't help but express, but it requires relationship for its expression. Right? Let's talk about what are those three? Fruit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. None of those matter apart from the context of relationship. Right? You can't be patient without me, and if you spend enough time with me, I'll test it. Right? Yes, you will. Yeah. Right? Self-control requires dynamics in terms of our engagement with one another, the sharing of resources, the, the, the biting of our tongue, knowing when something is edifying versus when something might be harmful. These are things that require other. Kindness. Kindness. Right? I can... You know, in an abstract way, it can be kind to the creative world and our environment, these kind of things. But kindness requires a reciprocating relationship, somebody to be kind to. So the fruit of God's working is the formation of our individual hearts that is expressed in this collective reality. It's that dynamic that God is after. It's this thing that finds our witness in, in this formative world together so that we can actually begin to tangibly engage something together. You know, Jesus said he came and he, he spent most of his time teaching about the kingdom of God. My best attempt at trying to define what he means by that is that the kingdom of God is where the rule and reign of God are effectively realized. And he starts that. It permeates internally. Right? It's this internal transformation. If anybody is in Christ, they are what? New creation. Right? But Paul's writing that to a group of people. Y'all, he's already seen it. You already are. He's brought that reality together inside of you, and you guys are already this new creation. We are this new creation. But the kingdom of God and the witness of it is this, that gets actually worked out together. He compares it to yeast. How do I know that yeast is in the dough? It rises. 
It's the effect of the yeast. It's its inner workings within the dough that transforms its purpose and what it's doing and what we can do with it. In a similar way, God is working in and through us so that our inner lives are formed in such a way. But what we're witnessing to, we're witnessing to together, that people will know we are his by seeing the working out of that life, which requires one another. So why do I give an answer for the hope and the defense? Because people are looking at it and going, holy cow, it's a loving community. They've been transformed. The yeast of the kingdom is permeating. It smells, right? I can, I can smell the dough in the house. I know that we're about to make bread. There's something happening here. The fragrance of Christ. So we need to frame these conversations and pull them together in this corporate dynamic of what it actually means to be the people of God in the world. So spiritual formation, just to kind of bring this again full circle. Spiritual formation is the process by which our inner life and way of being are more fully cultivated in Christ's likeness and the fruit of the Spirit, that singular fruit, so that its relational expression of this inner disposition can be manifest. You see, we can't privatize this. We can't do it independently. It requires other. But we also have to let it start within us. It starts with our own surrendered will. And spiritual formation is a process by which we progressively become more aware of and act in greater conditions to that which is actually true and real. The kingdom of God is truth. It is reality. It is what we were created for. This narrative that we see given to us in creation, where we're meant to be with God, where we're meant to work with God, where we're also not meant to be alone, this is our reality. And Christ is not just delivering us from the guilt of our sin, but he's bringing us back into the fullness of God's intentions for us through it. And so as we work on our own formation, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we begin to engage these things with a greater congruence and integrity in our life. And again, spiritual formation always begins with the individual part. It didn't change. Oh. It didn't change. Yeah. 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 It always begins with the individual heart sharing in its corporate call in nature, but it ultimately is moving in greater ways towards an ethic of love, both of God and one another. This is why we can summarize the law with those two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a little hint, neighbor in Greek is an adverb. You're always neighboring. This is calling us to simply be loving people. So when you see somebody in, a, in an accident on the side of the road, that's your neighbor right then and there. When you're in a supermarket, that's your neighbor right then and there. Right? We carry this reality with us, and so it never allows us to settle into that privatized, invisible, individual space. It's always calling us to something fuller, deeper, and more impactful because that's what God's always wanted for us and from us, and that's what he's continuing to redeem. You know, it's interesting. The only time Jesus prays for our collective mission together is in John 17. So we started with that verse that they may know you, that they, y'all, they all, y'all may know him, who's eternal life. But how's he finished that prayer? 
that they may be one. Why? He gives us a, a little, in order that clause, in order that the world might know that you sent me and loved me even as I have loved them. Right? They might know the love of God. The world will know the love of God through our unity. What an interesting prayer for mission. I think Jesus is trying to say there's something deeper here in our formation. We can't get to unity without hearts that have been formed. It's impossible. We cannot do this without Jesus. That intimacy, that collective identity, that sharing of burdens, it really requires Jesus in that space. He says, but as you engage that, as he's praying for it, as he's working for it, what happens is that manifestation of love, again, the yeast of the kingdom that's among us and within us, it emerges in the world to us. That's it. That's different. That's that surprise moment. That's the thing that deep down every soul desperately needs, even if it's not yet longing for. Hey, can you go back one slide? I, don't, I hope you don't mind me making a comment. Yeah. So you said uh, progressively become aware of an act in greater congruence to that which is actually true and real. And I flash back to my first slide. Yeah. The, the, the definition of apologetics is first, objective reasons and evidence that Christianity is true. It corresponds to reality. And then that the communication of that truth to the world. And I just love how we've come full circle that you're talking about how that's fleshed out yeah. in love and yeah. illness. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And it's like the Spirit's collectively speaking through us. It's surprising that he does that. Yes. Yeah. We just might be among us. So, fleshing this out even further. Colossians 3 is such a rich passage because it takes this idea, it takes a symbol of baptism, and it brings us into that deeper identity in, in, in following Jesus. And I'm actually going to grab my Bible real quick. Hold on. Had it in my notes, but you guys see what I see on the screen. But Colossians, it gets us into this, this passage where he's talking about putting on the new self. And I think this is a good summary of all that we've been talking about this weekend. And so in 1 through 11, it talks about, you know, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been seated, all these things, these are conditional clauses in the Greek. There are assume you are. So just read it as you are. We have been seated with him. We have been raised with him. He's already done this, right? So we're insiders. We're talking together collectively about an experience we now share in him. Oh, by the way, we also have to mention who you used to be, right? The corruption, the death, the things that you walked in, those things that were actually death that God never desired for you, those things that we need to continually put off because they're still death itself, so that the fullness of life can emerge among us. But then he gets to verse 12, and I want to read 12 through 17. But he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. 
Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father. Notice that there's four things in there that we can never do for ourselves. There are things that only Christ could do for us. One, he says that you are chosen. I can't choose myself. Second, he says you are beloved. Only Christ can make us that way. Third, he says you are holy. You are already set apart. The righteousness of Christ is in you. And then fourth, he says you are forgiven. You see, he starts with this identity of who we are, calling us into this bigger narrative of God's purposes and intentions for us through his work, through our history, that now define us. And these four things are already ours. You're already holy. So when Peter says, be holy, it's, it's holy. It's because it's who you are. Just as I can't run. Or I can't stop running. Because I'm a runner. Be holy. You are chosen. Y'all are chosen. We all are chosen. We are beloved. And we are forgiven. And out of this place, out of this fuller visual, mental picture, the vision in our VIM model that we we're giving yesterday, he says, now you therefore can put on these other things. You can form your inner world in such a way that they begin to manifest to where it's actually possible for you to have a compassionate heart. It's actually possible for you to live in kindness. It's actually possible for you to walk in humility and meekness and patience. It's actually possible to bear with one another. As far as that makes sound. These things are possible. And do that, there's one body. There's a role that we play in this together. You know, it's an interesting thing the brother brought up the, the, the stories of, of Jesus. And one actually came to mind that I think really encapsulates kind of what this is about and what we're trying to get to in this corporate communal dynamic that brings this collective witness and formation together. You know, when Lazarus had died, Jesus wept for him, but he had waited. And by the time he gets to Lazarus' womb, it's the fourth day. It's the third day where you can usually do anything ceremonial with the body, because on the fourth day, that's when rot begins to set in. The stench of death, right? These things begin to happen. Jesus intentionally chooses to go to Lazarus' tomb on the fourth day. When death had fully enveloped him, the cloths that were wrapped around him now carried its stench and its filth. Yet Jesus comes to the tomb and he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, rise and come out. And what's he do? He comes out and he's risen. There's new life in him. You see, that's the holy, beloved, chosen, forgiven. That's Jesus doing what only Jesus can do. But what's interesting is as he comes out, he's still wrapped in the linens of death. He still looks like it. He still smells like it. He still feels like it, even though inwardly and underneath it, there's new life that's emerged. But Jesus, in that moment, he turns to the community around Lazarus and says, you remove his death cause. You see, that's what we're doing. We're taking off what's dead and all are already not ours. It doesn't belong to us anymore. So that what's new and true and truly ours can be revealed. 
So when we bear with one another, when we forgive, and when we call one another forth, and we live into this collective formation together, we're removing one another's step cloths so that the newness of Christ's life can manifest. The world can look at us and say, no longer does the church smell like the fragrance of death. It smells like love, like life, like hope, like redemption, and things that I actually can see myself wanting for. See, that's why this tribalism and all the things we've been getting into, that's why it's so pervasively evil. Because it keeps us from engaging this dynamic and this process and holding on to a narrative that transcends any national or transnational narrative, any of these types of things. We belong to something greater. And the deeper we allow that to form us and to frame us, the better we'll be within the context we're given because we'll be bearing the fragrance of life no matter where we're at. Anywhere. Any vocation, any context, any job, Christ's life in me. Now, Keith told us he's an unabashed fan of Dallas Willard, and I would say I am as well. But I am also a huge fan of the missional scholar Western Newton. And I want to leave us with a bigger vision for us to get our intentions and our imaginations around so that our instrumentalities and practices can engage in. But I love this quote because it calls us forward as men and followers of Jesus. So Newbegin says this about what it means to be a part of the people of God. What God has given to the world in Christ is something different. It's an actual divine humanity, a real presence of God in human history. Not a new idea about God, but God made man, calling men into fellowship with himself. And having taken humanity upon himself, he has not again divested himself of it. So as son of man, he's at the right hand of the Father, and his spirit is given to the church. Which is ironic. All the times the Spirit is talked about in the New Testament, there's only one time I've spoken to us individually, and the rest are corporate. It's corporate. It's given to the church, which is his body on earth. In him, heaven and earth are truly joined. So he sends his apostles forth to be representatives, and he promises his presence with them always. Again, he's a man. They are beginnings of a real continuation of this redeeming work, an extension of divine, divine humanity, though in a different mode, through history until its consummation and is coming again. And this divine human fellowship is a real, visible community having its place in world history, even though the secret of its life is invisible and lies beyond world history. And again, Christ has promised to be with it to the end of the world, and it's it's his presence which constitutes it. New Newbigin was one of the most successful missionaries of the 20th century and one of its most brilliant thinkers. And one of the most succinct statements he has is this. He said, the world will always judge the written epistle by the living epistle. We want the world to hear our reasoning. If we want the world to hear our proclamations, he says, then you got to believe it. Because they'll be filtering everything you say through the actions that you take. Peter tells us this, and this is where I want to close. And sorry, this picture is a little harder to read because I love this is actually a mosaic we created in our community in Phoenix when we were getting a little divisive and having to work through things post COVID. We came together and we wrote our names on these little tiles and 
put them together so that collectively we can see it's only when we're with one another that the image of Christ is manifest among us. If you want to know how long it takes to create that in an Excel spreadsheet, I can tell you. <laughs> but this passage of 2 Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things, all things. Right? What does all mean? All. All. All things pertaining to life and godliness. What we're talking about. Through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he granted us to us his precious and very great promises. That So through them, you all may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, I was trained in an evangelical seminary. What's interesting is evangelicals, we always claim we're the best at literal translation. Evangelicals always try to explain this passage away. The only church tradition that holds this passage at face value historically and actually engages it is the Orthodox Church. It's the Eastern Greek-speaking and Russian churches and them. And they look at this and they say that the practice of discipleship is actually this practice of theosis, becoming God. We share his divine nature, but they have this very beautiful image that I want to, I just want to close with this image. See, God is like a burning fire. These blazing coals and embers that are just glowing red. We're like a sword that's plunged into that fire. The more we spend time with that fire, the more we dwell in it. I mean, this is what Paul is saying when he says, let us behold him will be transformed from one image of glory to another. But as we're beholding him in his presence, we take on his likeness so that when we pull the sword out of the fire, what's it look like now? Red hot. Red hot, and it radiates like the fire does, though it itself never is actually the fire itself. One thing, one thing interesting with that, the more you pull away from God, the cooler and the weaker it gets. Exactly. And the less it radiates what it's exactly. taking on. So then... You're not called to thrust yourself in the fire anymore. You're called to do it together. The burden of our witness is a collective burden that we share with one another. And there will be time where, yes, we have the individual responsibility to unpack and explain the reason for our hope. But it's our collective ability to live into this together that's going to testify to the love of God. And the only way to get there is to be formed in and through him. So that it's the natural response and disposition of who we are, so that the fruit of His Spirit may make us into a beautiful mosaic and reveal His divine nature in us. We already have everything we need, we just have to do it. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your providence. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love towards us. We thank you that you are Emmanuel. God with us. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of the smallness of our own vision and our own imagination, we are not bound by it. We are equipped and launched through your love. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us grab hold of the deeper narrative and work that you are trying to do in us as individuals, but even more so in us collectively as a community and as your followers and as the people of God in the world. And so, Lord, help us. We need your guidance and your leading. And may your spirit continue to empower us 
Give us the grace to walk with one another and allow, Lord, our collective witness bear itself to your glory so the world will look at us and say, yes, we know who they're sent by. Yes, we know who they belong to. And yes, the love of God is being expressed through them. We say this in the name of your eternal Son, Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen.